Just think about all that rain being snow. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? You're like, I would love that. Wouldn't it be awesome if it was all snow? That's what's supposed to happen in the winter. It's supposed to snow. I love the snow. But I'm loved that you're here and that we get to sing and learn together, lean in together. So welcome if you're here with us in the center. If you're watching online, how you doing? Hi, Mom. If you're uh, in the chapel engaging with this as well, thanks for being here. We have this opportunity to lean in. And, you know, my prayer as we start today, and I can speak it with my eyes open with you, it's a prayer that I have that God would take the words of this Jersey boy and use it to advance his kingdom and maybe challenge you. So that idea of being open to what God has for you today, that he's here and wants to speak, and he uses all kinds of methods to speak, my prayer is that you would hear his voice clearly today. So Peter, we're in a letter that he wrote, it's his second letter, and he's writing to Christians, people that are following Jesus Christ, and trying to, almost as an analogy of athletes, that athletes need to have disciplined, deliberate decisions to make it through the difficulties that they face in order to get to the end and win, right? So any Olympic athlete, the amount of discipline and deliberate decision-making to get the gold is just incredible. And Peter's saying to us in this letter that the kind of effort and energy, deliberate decision-making it takes for a Christ follower is so important. And that's what he's going to challenge us with today. And when we think about the end, so when you think about the end of the fight, the end, the victory line, where you, where you cross the line as a person, what do most of us think about? We think about the finish line is death right? At some point, we're going to die. Every person is going to die, and that's a finish line, right? And we believe that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that when you cross that finish line, you take your final breath, you'll be in Jesus' presence, and he'll welcome you, and you'll live with him forever. That's the hope of the Christ follower. That's the end that most of us think about. But what happens if the end is different than that? We don't talk about this that much, although in our culture we hear about it, but the end may not be your death. It may be the end of the world, what's commonly called the apocalypse. And again, maybe you're like, well, I don't really know if I want to talk about this today, but Peter's trying to instruct us and to help us see everything and be prepared for everything. So when you hear the word apocalypse, what do you think about? Does it bring you good feelings? happy, excited, ooh, this is going to be fun, or has Hollywood and, and maybe our imaginations and maybe even God's Word made us think these vivid thoughts of destruction and cosmic wars, this kind of crazy stuff that's scary, right? If we're honest, when we think about the apocalypse, we feel that it's scary. And maybe that's why Hollywood puts out so many movies about this the end of the world. I mean, probably if I took a show of hands in the last two years, you've seen some kind of apocalyptic film about how the end is going to happen. It sort of captures our imagination, and therefore Hollywood produces all kinds of things about it. But probably most of us think that will never happen in my lifetime. If there is going to be an end of the world, if the apocalypse is going to take place, it won't happen when I'm alive. It's not something I'll have to deal with, deal with so you just ignore it. 
or you just let your imagination go with it, but you don't really think about it. And then there's the whack jobs that fixate on it. You know those kinds of people in science or religion that everything they think about, read about, breathe about is the end, and they just scare you, right? They just talk about it, and it's just everything is, the sky is falling, this next worst thing is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and it just scares you. To think about the end, to use your imagination, to be entertained by it, to fixate on it, to be scared of it, is that really what God's purpose is for you and me? I, I don't think so. I don't think that's His purpose at all, actually. The word apocalypse is, is a Bible word. It's a Greek word that's used in the Bible. It's actually in the last book of the Bible. That book, it's called The Revelation of the Christ. You've heard that. Many of you have heard that before. It's really the apocalypse of the Christ. It's the revealing of the Christ in the last days. So apocalypse, end of the world, is, is something God wants us to know about and is something God wants us to deal with, think about, but not to scare us, to prepare us. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. It's towards the end of your Bible, electronic or paper. Follow along with me. I'm just going to walk through this. And again, Peter's desire is to prepare us to face the fight to face the fight we're all in called life and wants us to know in advance things that, on God's heart so that we can be ready for it. So remember, Peter is a disciple of Jesus, spent a lot of time with Jesus, three plus years. He was instrumental in starting the church of Jesus Christ, and he was martyred for his faith, which means he believed in Jesus so strongly when people said, you'll have to die for your faith, he didn't, he didn't tap out. He stayed in, and that meant he died for his faith in Jesus Christ. So you talk about a guy that's fought to the finish, and he has something to say. He loves us so much that he writes these words, and they're very urgent, and there's a directness to what he's going to say because he loves people so much he wants you to know and understand God's heart. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Peter says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and the Savior, and Lord and Savior through your apostles. So he's encouraging Christ followers then and us today to be awake. He, he wants us to have wholesome, genuine sincere thinking about all things that we've learned about Jesus. And in verse 3, he begins to lean into this talk about the last days. Now, I want you to remember a conversation we had a couple weeks ago. When Peter talks about the end of all things and the last days, he has in mind this really wide-angle storyline that God is writing, that God in His love created a world in His love. And remember this graphic where we walk through the different seasons, chapters of life, that God is writing a story. It's called God is Love, and it starts with God and how He created a world to share His love with. He made us in His image and gave us the opportunity to choose to love Him or not to love Him. We rejected God. That's called sin, and that's rebellion. And because of sin and rebellion, God is just, and He can't just let that go unpunished. He loves us too much, so He says those consequences of your sin that separates you from me, but I love you so much 
that I promise I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to send you someone who's going to fix your problem. He sends his one and only son into the world to die and rise again, to offer all who would trust in him by faith forgiveness and entrance into the family of God. He promised it. Jesus showed up. And now we live in what I'll call chapter 6. It's the season of time when Jesus came the first time and ascended back to God. He's going to come again at another date. We live in this holy magnetic time. That's my language for we're in this chapter of time where God wants us to talk about Jesus with people. Spread this good news in a holy, not weird way, holy, I'm devoted to you, God, I love you, God, magnetic way that I represent you to other people so that they see that you're alive and they come into the family of God because Peter knows that chapter 6 will last only however many years, but some point the last chapter will come where God will judge the world and restore all things. And that's what's in his mind when he talks about the end of all things or the last days. Keep that in mind as I read this. Above all, Verse 3, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. They'll say, where is this coming? So he's, he's talking about how there are people that just look at Jesus and go, there's no way someone's coming to judge and restore the world. That just won't happen. And nothing ever changes. What people live, people die. People live, people die. Generation goes, generation goes. People live, people die. There's no coming of Jesus a second time to make all things right and new. Everything same old, same old. Peter's warning them, verse 5, but they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's Word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. You see, people deny that Christ is going to return. They underestimate the power of God because they just don't see it. They don't sense it. They, they go, ah, life just keeps going the way it always goes. People suffer, people die, people suffer people die, but what they underestimate is the power of God, and that God is faithful. If He says something, it will come to pass. It may not come to pass when we think it will or how we think it will, but God is always faithful to His Word. Whatever He thinks and whatever He speaks will come to pass, and nothing ever can thwart that or stop that. Verse 8, but don't forget this one thing, one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. He's reminding us, don't forget this, you're different than God. God is infinite, and you're finite. God's ways, God's sense of time, God's decision-making, His thoughts are higher and further and deeper than anything you could imagine. You're finite. Yes, created in His image, but different. Let's make sure we keep this straight. You and God, human and God, different. A thousand years in your sight, Moses writes, is like a day that has just gone by, or a watch 
in the night. There's something about God that's so eternally big that to try to compare ourselves or think like he thinks or solve like he solves or answer like he answers is to put God in a box and Peter's saying to them, hey, don't be so ignorant and arrogant as to think. Your ways are the same as God's ways. Verse 9, for the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. So he promised he's going to return. Verse 9 says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. As some understand slowness, instead he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He said he's going to return. We're in this season where we go, yeah, maybe yes, maybe no, probably not. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Man, this is profound about the character and nature of God. He doesn't want anyone to perish. His love is so deep, so strong, that to us what looks like he's late, to us what looks like, hey God, you promised you'd fix things, you promised you'd solve things, you promised you'd cure things, you promised you would end my suffering, my pain, my struggle, my anxiety, my fear, you promised you would return and make things all right and new. What's the deal? You're late. Why is he late? God is patient. That's why. He's not wanting anyone to perish. So right at the very core of who God is, what might seem to you as slow, and he's not active, not aware, not awake, not engaged, is God's patience rooted in his love and in his grace and his mercy so that all would hear about Jesus, put their trust in Jesus, and come into the family of God. The reason his judgment doesn't come right here, right now, is because of his love and his grace and his mercy, his patience with people. But at some point, a time will come in a way of God's choosing that the end will take place because God is both loving and he's just. You see, for him to be loving as a parent, he also must make consequences. So for me to say I love my sons and let them do whatever the heck they want, without consequence, without discipline, is to really not love them. If I let them do whatever they want with their time and their money and their iPhones, just, yeah, do whatever you want, and I say, on this side I love you, and then I let you do whatever you want, even with what you want is evil or sinful or wrong, then I really don't love you. God loves us so much that he can't just turn the blind eye to evil and sin and to rebellion because that would not be love. He is just in all his ways, which means at some point he will judge the world. Verse 10 describes that day. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Let me break this apart for you. What does he mean by the day of the Lord? He says the day of the Lord will come. Bible uses that phrase multiple times. Specifically, he's talking about the last day that God is going to judge the world, the final judgment of God. You see, God said, okay, I made you to love me. You rejected me. I didn't just judge the world then. I provided a way for you to come into my family through my son. 
Now I offer him to you. He lived and died and rose again so that anybody from thousands of years ago that looked forward to the cross of Jesus Christ and anybody from thousands of years on this side that looked back to this historic moment where Jesus was hung on a cross, absorbed the wrath of God on his shoulders, died and rose again, that anyone who looks to the Son has eternal life. And he provided that for the world. And in this chapter of human history, we're to make this Jesus known so that people can be repent and saved forever. But at some point, he's going to judge the world. And you, you want to know how he's going to judge it? It's a very simple question. Here's how he judges the world. What do you say about my son? Do you accept my son or do you reject him? Do you welcome my son as the only way to get to me? through his life and death and resurrection, not through your good works, not through your religion, through him, my one and only way? Or do you reject him? Because if you reject him, that's what separates. That's the, that's the line of demarcation. What do you say about Jesus? If you accept him, you're welcomed into the family of God. If you reject him, the Bible says you'll spend eternity separated from God in eternal punishment. And at some point, this will occur. And the imagery, Paul, or excuse me, the imagery that Peter uses is the same imagery that Jesus uses and Peter uses. He says, This final judgment will come like a thief. He says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, what do you know about thieves? They, they come to steal, okay, but you're always surprised by a thief. You never think, Oh, it'll happen to me today. It'll never happen to me, period. You're always taken by surprise when a thief steals. And Jesus is saying the same thing. He's saying you can never plan or predict when a thief is going to come, but you can prepare for it. And so it is for Christ followers. We can prepare but not predict when this end will come. God's design is not for us to know when it will happen, but to just be awake and prepared that it will happen. Because he said it, we believe it, and then we're therefore prepared. But to say, ah, it's never going to happen is not what he has, but certainly all the whack jobs that are trying to predict when it's going to happen, you can say that you're a whack job because the Bible clearly says it's going to happen like a thief and nobody can predict when a thief comes, therefore, get out. Like, honestly, there's too much wackos out there doing this, predicting that's not what God has for us. He continues to describe it and says the heavens are going to disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So this language is, is violent. It is final judgment. It is destroyed by fire. It's much like the flood in Noah's day. If, if you read the book of Genesis, God used water to wipe out all of humanity. And this final judgment, he says, is going to use fire. This isn't pleasant. This isn't something we rejoice over. This isn't something we're like, yay, let's preach about this. Turn or burn. Like, that's not what this is. This is sober. This is, this is, this is warning. This, this is prepare. This is real. It begs the question, if you're awake, will Christ followers have to endure this? Will we live through this time? And if you go back to what we talked about last week, we talked in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9, we talked about how God destroyed the ungodly people of Noah's time but rescued Noah. God 
destroyed the sinful people of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he rescued Lot. He says in 2 Peter 2, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Paul also, speaking about this in 1 Thessalonians 5, and side note, if you want to read more about this and try to understand the day of the Lord and this end time stuff, the book of 1 Thessalonians is very helpful. But Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, God did not appoint his children to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't appoint his children to go through wrath. And this is what's so incredible. We can be confident today that God's children will be rescued from wrath. Why? Because of all our good deeds and how holy and righteous we are? No, because Jesus absorbed our wrath on his shoulders. I mean, this is incredible good news that I am a sinner and I deserve God's backhand. I am a sinner. I am under the wrath of God. I am a rebel that God allows me to live. And I choose to put my trust in Jesus that he absorbed on the cross all the wrath of God. He took it in his body on that tree for every sin of every human from forever that way to forever that way was paid for on the cross. He absorbed it and satisfied God's wrath and now offers that gift to humanity. And when we accept that gift from him, we are sheltered forever from God's wrath. That is incredible. That's worth rejoicing over, that we will never need to fear his wrath because Jesus already took it. It makes me grateful. It makes me think, my goodness, and I just treat Jesus like a casual friend, high five Jesus, when you did that for me, that I couldn't do for myself, you did it for me to shelter me. But to reject this, for you're sitting here today, if you're listening to this, and to hear that God's wrath will be poured out on all evil and all sin. He poured it out on Christ's shoulders and took it on his own shoulders for you. You hear that and you either accept it or reject it. But if you reject it, then should you be surprised that his wrath is coming on you? Should you be surprised if you say, no, I don't need that, Jesus. All that you took on your shoulders, I'm good. I'm good enough. I'm loving enough. I'm kind enough. I'm religious enough. I don't need to honor God. I don't need, there is no God. When he did that to his son and you go, Psh, then, then should you be surprised that in his love, his judgment will come and it will be swift and it will be final. And I don't say that happily. I say it as a warning and an encouragement to be prepared you see, he wants us not to be scared by all of this, but prepared. It is sobering, but it's a preparation. So if this is how things are going to end, if this is what plays out and what God says is going to take place, how, how do we respond to it practically? What does this mean for you and me if we place our faith and trust in Jesus? I'm thankful that Peter answers that in verse 11. He says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So he says, to those who have put their trust in Jesus, if you're here today and you don't believe in Jesus, 
or you're just curious and seeking, he's not talking to you, and I'm glad you're here. But if you're here today and you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, he's really saying there's only two responses to the second coming of Christ. You can look, you can ignore the second coming of Christ and get comfortable and fall asleep. So you could hear all of this and go, yeah, Jesus, I believe you, I need you, but you know what, I'm going to pursue my kingdom, my 401k, my sexuality, my feelings, my relationships, my family, my career, my academics, my money, my retirement, my comfort, me and my can dominate everything you do and think as a follower of Jesus. And if it's about me and my, you are asleep. And when he comes, it will be a surprise. You'll wake up and you'll stand and see your king who took the wrath of God on his shoulders, and you'll have been asleep, ineffective, and unproductive, answering to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Oh, you'll be welcomed into the family, but you won't get the rich welcome that Peter describes, because it's all about you and advancing your kingdom and your oil life and your physical fitness and your third uh, mud run and your uh, different things with your kids and your kid is four years old but they're going to the league and all this stuff, you know, your retirement and your golf game and you're padding your finances and you advancing your looks because you got to get Botox. You, you mean all this me and my, me and my, me and my, me and my, advancing me and my kingdom as a son or daughter of the king? That's not his design for you. Instead, he says, you should look forward to the second coming of Christ by living a holy, magnetic life. Verse 11, you ought to live holy, godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. He's saying to you, wait, you say you put your trust in me? I took on my shoulders the wrath you deserve? I live inside you now, and I want to change you. I want to change your appetites. I want to change your actions. I want to change your attitudes. I want to change you. And as I change you, I want to use you. I want to use you to advance my kingdom. I want to use you to show people love. I want you to love the things that I love, Joe. And I want you to hate the things that I hate. And I want you to grow into that and be used to advance the kingdom of God. You're to be holy, Joe, which not is pious. It's not judgmental. It's not spiritual. It's I'm wholly devoted to my king, and I'm advancing his kingdom and not my kingdom. That you can do that, Joe. You can be holy and godly. And did you hear what he said? You can speed his coming that day when he returns. You can speed that up. What does that mean? Well, remember earlier we talked about why he seems slow? He seems slow because he wants everyone to come. He wants people to hear the name of Jesus, embrace the name of Jesus, come into the family of God. And he's saying, you can speed that up by how you live today, if you would choose to live for my kingdom and not yours. To use your life to love and serve other people instead of loving and serving yourself. People at school and at work, in your neighborhood, in your families, is it possible that maybe, just maybe, they'll start to see Jesus in you? That they'll see that Jesus is alive in you? 
that Jesus controls your appetites, that Jesus controls your actions, that he controls your affections, he controls you in such a magnetic way. They want to know you and know your king, and they could come into the family of God forever, that you're saying to me, God, you're going to use me to advance your kingdom? That's your design for me? Is that incredible? You guys are all bored. This is urgent. This isn't a game. This is serious. People's lives are at stake. So knowing these things is to motivate. Why does he teach this? Knowing how things will end will motivate us to love and serve people. That's the point. That's why he wrote it, so that we would serve unconditionally. And we wouldn't make judgments about people and go, I'm not going to love them. I'm not going to serve them. Do you know their political view? you know their sexual orientation? Do you know what they think, what they believe? No, I'm not going to talk to them. I'm not going to love them. I'm not going to serve them. We have the opportunity to love and serve unconditionally and advance the kingdom of God because there is a real end. The kingdom will last forever, his kingdom. So Joe's kingdom... Joe's family, Joe's house, Joe's cars, Joe's technology, Joe's opinion, my clothes, everything I have is going to burn. Only what I do for Christ and his kingdom will last. But we're asleep. We're worrying about our diet and our fitness and our finances and our comfort and our sexuality and our hobbies and our leisure and our favorite sports team and our career advancement. And I get it. I'm there with you. Please, I'm with you. But he's raising our eyes to something higher and wider and saying, God loves the world so much. And there's going to be a day where he's going to make everything right and new. And he's going to use you to do that. Wake up. Love, serve, keep your eyes on Jesus. It changes everything when you live that way. He says there's going to come a day in keeping with the promises of God that there will be a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will dwell, that we're promised in the Scriptures that God is going to walk with us, that there's coming a day that God is going to be with us and we will be His people and He will be our God and we'll be connected to Him forever. And He says He's going to wipe every tear from every eye and He's going to remove suicide and anxiety and depression and financial problems and worry about your image. He's going to remove all of that. There's coming this great day where our King will make everything right and new because right now it is not right and it needs to be new. And how will it happen when you and me get off our tails and love and serve? Don't clap. Don't clap. Go home today and love your wife like Christ loved the church. Go home today and respect your husband. Go home today and love your kids and don't exasperate them. Go home today and pour your life out for your neighbors, not your 45 or 50 in screen TV. Go home today and killing yourself the appetite for alcohol and drugs and the affections of people. Go home today and say, I want to be different, God. Change me. Awaken me. Use me. I'm in proximity to people that are going to hell. Use me. Father in heaven, please, there's a sobriety to this. 
not to frighten us, to prepare us, to awaken us. Your sons and daughters in this place have been asleep. Forgive us, all of us, and help us. We desperately need you. We need you to fill our hearts, our hands, our mouths with love, love for others, love for people that have hurt us, love for people that are different from us, love. You came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. So we come as your sons and daughters to give our lives, to lay them down before you, that you might use our work, our homes, our hearts, our affections, our leisure time, our hobbies, that you would use everything about your sons and daughters to advance one and only thing, Jesus, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and it will never perish, spoil, or fade. So we hitch our wagon to you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for forgiving us, Jesus. Use us, Jesus, to the end that you would make all things right and your heavens would be filled with your glory and with your family. This is our prayer in Christ's name.